Thank you for joining us for the Mental Health on Campus podcast. My name is Anne, and I'm your host for today. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Innovation in Campus Mental Health. We work with campuses and community organizations in Ontario to address the mental health needs of students. This episode of the podcast is one piece of CICMH's Anti-Oppressive Practice Toolkit. The project aims to help those who support students on campus better understand what anti-oppressive practice is, how it can be integrated into their roles, and how everyone on campus can contribute to creating a more mentally well campus to anti-oppressive practices. For this episode, I'm joined by Eunice and Patience. Hi, everyone. First of all, thank you so much for having me on this podcast. I'm Eunice. I am a recent graduate from political science, and I'm currently working for my student council at Western University. I'm the vice president of external affairs, so I do a lot of our government relations and then also president of the Ontario Undergraduate Student Alliance, which is our provincial lobby group. I'm really passionate about a variety of social issues, whether it's environmental sustainability, um, racial equity, all of that stuff. And so that's where I've been focusing a lot of my energy on and advocacy on, and then also just accessibility to education. But yeah, I'm a first-generation Nigerian immigrant, so I was born in Nigeria, um, I'm a Black woman, so that's that's the lens I'll be speaking from today, from my lived experiences, and yeah, I'll pass it over to Patience. Hello, thank you for having me today. So my name is Patience Johnston. I'm going to do a traditional opening. So I'm Ian Wanabozo, Patience from Dijnikaz. He's Kazagi, and it's not big. Minawa, Pegasus First Nation, um, or Thunder Bay, Ontario, and Winnipeg, Manitoba, and Dojaba. Barry, Ontario, Cambridge, Ontario, uh, Megwa, Mukwa, Minawa, Mishkan, and Dodan. And that all means hello and welcome. My name is Patience. I'm was born in Thunder Bay. I'm, I'm technically from Thunder Bay, Ontario. Kishke Zagi, Anishinaabek First Nation is Gobe First Nation. I was born near Fort William. And my other side of the family is from Pegwis First Nation in Winnipeg, Manitoba. I moved to Cambridge, grew up in Cambridge, and I'm living in Barrie for school at the moment. I'm from my clans are Bear Clan and Turtle Clan. So me being in Barry, I'm working for Georgian College. I'm working as a Nuwijiagan at the moment, which is a peer mentor. That means my friend in Cree. I'm taking Indigenous Community and Social Development. I'm in my first year. I've worked previously with Niagara College in a similar role. And this is something that I find to be really helpful in terms of what I can provide and what I can gain from the community. I have a community-focused approach to a lot of the things that I do, and so speaking to a community of individuals here at CICMH is something I'm really looking forward to. So thank you for having me. Miigwech. Thank you both for joining us today. Let's get started. As you know, CICMH's latest toolkit is on anti-oppressive practice. What does anti-oppressive practice mean to you? Eunice, let's start with you. Yeah, I think for me, when I think of the word oppression in itself, I think of hardships that are unjustly placed on maybe it's an individual or community or group. And so for me, anti-oppressive practices are taking 
those hardships into account and then taking into account the intersectionalities of that individual or community in order to mitigate the oppressions or the hardships that have historically or continue to be placed on certain people and it impacts certain communities. So whether that's socioeconomic status, race, culture, gender, um, whatever it may be, it's really trying to mit mitigate you know, those hardships that have existed within our society for however you know, long. And so it's really looking at how we can address those barriers within the context of mental health to mental health um, services. But I think just more broader, high level, it's it's taking into account the intersectionalities of individuals. Patience, what about you? Mental impressive practice to me, speaking from a trauma-informed lens and uh, using an Indigenous-based approach is just being mindful that Indigenous differs from a general collective of minorities and the intersectionality is such a good point because we all have these unique and identifiable points of oppression a lot of the time and as an indigenous woman as an indigenous student as, as someone who accesses indigenous services having those available and led by indigenous and or extremely indigenous and trauma-informed individuals is considerable and of consideration for the differentiating ways that Indigenous people exist, specifically in Canada. The impact of oppression on a student's mental health is so important. In your opinion, what does an anti-oppressive campus look like? Patience, let's start with you. As a leg onto what I was just saying, I. I think that having a trauma-informed lens is something that is so pinnacle to properly hosting anti-oppressive practices because there's something specifically traumatic, whether it be personal in complex nature or systemically generational, like generational trauma, all of that in facing an oppressive party whatever that looks like, whatever that form of discrimination is, it contributes to oftentimes cycles of repeated traumatic instances. And like I said, whether or not it's quick, almost, I want to say like traumatic whiplash where you get that one instance and your whole perspective on um, either moving to Canada, moving around Canada, existing as a minority in Canada is shifted, or it's something that is long and drawn out and slow burn making sure that we have informed communities, safe spaces, and the awareness for these, the range of oppression is, is kind of the foundation for good anti-oppressive practices. All that to be said, when I think of where I can find a safe space as an Indigenous student, I want a space where I can go and I can smudge, I can burn my medicine. I want a space that has something with elements of my culture and not in the name of further segregating, but instead celebrating Indigenous identity and making sure that we have something like that, like Indigenous services, so that all other people who face similar elements of discrimination can have the same thing with the main goal of equity, but first addressing what it is that is oppressing us to begin with. I hope that makes sense. Eunice. What do you think? 
Yeah, I think first of all, patience, I think that made a lot of sense. Um, and I think earlier you also mentioned something that I really agree agree with and that's the culturally relevant trauma-informed support and so when we think about an anti-oppressive campus for me specifically like as a black woman I'm you know within post-secondary academia and it's hard to forget that these are institutions that are you know Eurocentric have those roots and so a lot there are a lot of like over and covert oppressions that exist that may not always be recognized. So when I'm thinking about like an anti-oppressive practice, it's what is my institution or like what what is being done basically to mitigate and try to eliminate those oppressions. And so, for example, for the Ontario Undergraduate Student Alliance, which I'm currently president of, we have a survey which was basically asking students, you know, what they what they need in their mental health supports. And a lot of students are talking about a need for diverse staff and then also a need for diverse approaches to mental health support. And that's that like culturally relevant piece because it's not not a one size fits all thing. And I think we'll talk about this later, but for some students, it's so daunting to reach out and get these supports when, you know, you have a fear that you're cultural context won't be taken into account or, you know, your racial and like lived and, you know, learned experiences won't be taken into account. And so I think that's a a major thing for me is really looking at how relevant these supports are and then also taking into account that trauma that, you know, exists in a lot of cultures, whether it's different implications of or like historical ideas of mental health or stigmas that surround that. It's really important to account for that and then figure out how these supports can be catered to various students in order for them to reach this support. Thank you both for sharing. Do you have any experiences you'd like to share about when campus mental health supports haven't met your needs? How could anti-oppressive practices have improved these situations? Have you had any positive experiences that you wish could be expanded or duplicated on other campuses? Eunice, let's start with you. I think I might have a relatively short answer because I I haven't really had experiences with campus mental health supports because of my hesitancy to even find this support. I think looking at maybe the mental health professionals like on my campus, for example, and not really being able to find someone that would connect with my intersectionalities, being a first-generation Nigerian immigrant, a Black woman, like there's just a lot of, I think, different intersections to myself that have prevented me from accessing these supports because I basically want to be able to relate to the person I'm discussing with because of like all those different layers that kind of come with culture and race and um, like my background. So I would say, I guess I haven't had a a negative experience or a positive experience, or maybe that counts as a negative experience. But yeah, for me, it's, it's just the barrier in finding that support that's easy for me to access. And then although there are options for, you know, off campus supports as you know, a recently graduated student, for me, it was just easier to be, to find these supports on campus. And so when I don't see that on campus, it just becomes like more of a barrier. And I'm sure there are so many other students that are also going through the same thing or have gone through the same thing too. Patience, what do you think? That to me is kind of a form of having an experience with um, not having your needs met, the lack thereof support, uh, and not feeling like there is even a safe stream 
to access when we're trying to navigate this world of academia combined with industrialized institutions. So we're kind of getting pumped out to go and find a job. So we're stressed about that. We're stressed about social balance. And we're, there's a lot of things externally that we're balancing as students. And so all that to be said, like considering all of that, I think that what, I, what I'm reminded of essentially is the medicine wheel. And in brief, it is this, if you could picture it, uh, a circle split into four and there's, there's a white quadrant, there's a red quadrant, there's a yellow quadrant, and then there's a black quadrant. And those all signify many different things. For instance, east, south, west, north. They signify the four sacred medicines that indigenous people tend to use in their practice. So tobacco, sage, cedar, and sweet grass. And it also speaks to components of ourselves. So the emotional well-being, physical well-being, spiritual well-being and mental well-being all need to be in balance in order for the center of our wheel, which is ourself, to feel at peace and at ease and whole and can see the clearer picture. And in a perfect world, we walk through and juggle all of these external things well because of the balance that we have internally. And seeing images of the medicine wheel are nice reminders I see them around certain schools. I see them a lot in my program, which is Indigenous Studies. To extend that necessity of cultural teachings, like speaking from an Indigenous lens, because that's, that's what I experience. You know, I, I can't speak to what it must be like to be a Black woman, an immigrant. I, I can't speak to that. I can only empathize with where I've walked, which is the Indigenous road and this indigenous way of existing. And so knowing that I've learned all of this and it's all resonated with me as someone who's honestly grown up with rather European driven ideals and things that I've internalized, knowing that you can learn it and adapt it and adopt it, sorry, and know that, that it's okay to exist with balance. It's okay to take teachings that don't feel like your own. Extending indigenous teachings and making them accessible to everyone in a way that no longer exploits them is something that I found has helped shape access to mental health support because it's not just mental health support. You have to feel okay. You have to, you have to feel okay with your body and you have to feel okay with your spirit and understand that when you receive these teachings, you're in alignment with that. And I always say to people, it's okay. You don't have to worry. Like you're on indigenous land. It's okay. So when in Rome, do as Romans do. Just being open and having that, like being as receptive as possible, I think can, in terms of speaking to the institutions, being as, as receptive as possible can help shape mental health support. I hope that makes sense. And then I didn't ramble too much. No, I think it did. And you even said something um, like speaking from my experience, but then also what you said earlier, it also speaks to the importance of kind of like the whole of community approach, which is a term that we use a lot in our policies, which is basically saying that like post-secondary institutions, ministries, local community-based care providers all need to collaborate and coordinate their delivery of service 
with like clearly identified roles so that there are no gaps in treatment for students and so that students are able to know where they can receive you know the support and nobody's kind of left behind or is like slipping between the cracks and so I guess within my experience what an anti-oppressive practice that could have improved the situation was a greater emphasis on that so that maybe you know I'm able to kind of go out within the community and receive receive that support there because I know a lot of like friends too that have gone through that same thing and it's just kind of like oh if I can't find it on campus then oh well but that shouldn't be the case at all there definitely should be those options I'm really happy that resonates because that's certainly the I guess like overarching point that I'm trying to make is like it, it is something that I think that in a in a western sense with a eurocentric mindset tends to just further marginalize indigenous points of view well that's just indigenous teachings that that's just the way that you think that's just the way that that indigenous cultures operate which isn't true and that holistic approach is inclusive of other people and it, it certainly is the point of us having the confidence in the face of such a, an, a nemesis of, of a society so to speak uh, being open to sharing these things in in a world that once taken it from us makes me feel really good that it does resonate and it what I am saying has weight and that people can understand exactly what I'm trying to communicate. Last question. How would you recommend that staff who support student mental health implement anti-oppressive practices in their work? Patience, let's start with you. This is an amazing question because I think this one could we could probably go on and on and on and on and on about. With that, I, I think that in individualizing your support, knowing that there's not one size fits all, kind of like what Eunice was saying earlier, understanding that the people that you're speaking with who are seeking these supports aren't the only ones who need it. And so taking something from it, if you're a staff member and you see somebody coming up to you struggling with, let's say, uh, like depressive symptoms, they don't know how to communicate that and it's not your place to go and point the finger with a diagnosis or what have you. Knowing and drawing from the information that you might have learned along the way might only get you so far. So being open to this is something that I've never tapped into, like having that conversation with yourself, I've never had to provide this kind of support, makes it a little less daunting to one, support the student, and two, go on with the remainder of your career interacting with students and being able to do that and tackle that because it can be a lot to be sensitive to somebody's emotions and their well-being while still trying to be in the kind of constraints that you're placed in with supporting mental health and not violating any of your practices and not speaking out of your scope of practice especially so knowing that I think to combine what I've been saying this whole time too is that there are no really right or wrong ways of supporting taking a time to kind of read the room and either draw from what you know or throw that out the window can really help shape just at least one person and if you can see it in the conversations that you're having with people who are approaching you for that help you can then turn to extend that with an arm to reach out for others who might be showing those same signs of struggle and or bring it into a place where you have the platform to share that maybe we need to do, be doing more. Maybe our institution isn't doing enough. 
maybe this isn't working and this might. And knowing that this is all in good faith and good practice, trusting the process, I think kind of minimizes the pressure of providing mental health support. Eunice, what do you think? Yeah, I think echoing a lot of those points, it's really important for staff to know what gaps need to be filled. So I think that comes down to listening to students and, you know, whoever we're trying to support to figure out what what is the issue? What's going on? Why, you know, why aren't students feeling comfortable accessing supports? Why aren't, you know, certain groups of students not accessing supports? So it's really important to first listen to students. And then I think also listening to experts within the field of mental health and researchers within the field who are knowledgeable and have, you know, done this extensive research, but also diversifying those sources, because as we've kind of emphasized, it's not a one size fits all approach. And we know that, there, there are knowledge gaps in a lot of areas of research that don't take into account identity and don't take into account um, those intersectionalities. And the, so that leaves a lot of, you know, groups kind of not included, you know, within that research. So I think it's also really important to things like this, like, you know, looking at the anti-oppressive lens um, and just making sure that we are looking at things at an equitable lens and able to provide that equitable support, knowing that, you know, what will work for one student won't work for another. I think that's that's the main thing, but I would just like to emphasize again just how important it is really to hear from the students themselves because you know it's the students that are you know trying to access the support. Yeah, I think I think that's what I would say. And I completely agree with a lot of the points that patients brought up also. I'm really happy you mentioned that. And there's actually something from a reading that I did in school, which I wonder if we could cite. I I would like to give credit where it's due, and I don't remember what the title of it is, but I do have an excerpt that I just want to read in brief. And it just reads that for too long, Western-based research methodologies have failed to incorporate the perspectives and values of Indigenous peoples. As a result, the outcomes of many studies, including health research, are often irrelevant to the needs of our communities. In addition, many Indigenous women's stories have gone untold or have been misinterpreted. And it goes on to kind of explain exactly what Eunice was just saying. And with obviously like an indigenous focus, but that can, it's something that is highly applicable to other communities. And I think becoming aware using, like I, like I said earlier, that trauma-informed lens, that indigenous-based approach, holistic approaches, all of that are key to understanding that the process of diversifying is decolonizing. Like we, we need to become aware of how mainstream colonized information, knowledge, even the theories, even the, even the ways that we construct this research is not sound in indigenous way of, of thinking and of believing in oneself. And so, I, I think that having these indigenous elders, people who have these, these stories with them, knowledge keepers or even indigenous voices can help us in that process of trusting that other perspectives exist and they're key and pivotal to, to these kinds of conversations and that 
an elder who's lived a life and walked the road of their teachings of tradition is just as much of an expert as someone who studied it in school. And here's a safe space to, to understand these concepts. And so, yeah, I, I've been really honored to share all of that and, and host that, that element of this conversation and that it's echoed and received. And so thank you guys for listening to that. Exactly. And just one more point for me, but I'm so glad that you brought up that quote because it reminded me of a conversation that I was having. And I think it was some statistic that I saw basically about Black women during childbirth and like how how often they are not believed of like the pain that they're going through, which often leads to higher rates of death during childbirth in comparison to like a white woman, for example. And so that quote that you brought up just reminded me of that because just as much as it's prevalent within kind of like that, the medical field or like the healthcare field, it's also prevalent within the mental health field. And so we also have to acknowledge that a lot of providers like might have inherent racist beliefs, which would also, could also traumatize someone who is trying to get that help. And so that's also something that needs to be accounted for. It's, you know, like what are, what are these, you know, interviewing or vetting processes looking like? How are we ensuring that, you know, mental health providers or staff are really taking into account, you know, the identity of that individual and really able to provide that relevant support. I think that's also really important in terms of that hiring process or whatever that process is that different institutions are going through to provide that support and making sure that it is relevant for students and really providing that support so that there isn't that re-traumatization or, you know, new forms of trauma. That is so, you're just ringing so many bells. And I I just did a quick little Google search. We learned about this concept way back in like grade 12 sociology of emic and etic understandings of experiences and culture and that cross-cultural experiences. So the ability to speak as an Indigenous woman and know what an Indigenous woman's experience is like could, can never and will never be properly expressed or held to the same degree as, let's say, a white man explaining a woman's, an indigenous woman's experience. And it's, it's exactly that point of having these, suppose there are more people who hold oppressive values than we think, and it affects healthcare systems, which going back to the medicine world will inevitably affect our mental health. And if it's cyclical, if we have to keep going back to the points of where am I? Why am I stressed? Do I feel it in my body? How is this affecting my emotions? How am I then being misguided? It should the spiritual belief and element of it resonate. So understanding that getting down to the bottom of these, these forms of research, who was the research done on? Who is the research for? Is it, does it include me and my experiences? And it's how would my experiences then affect this research and these results of what's effective and what isn't. And knowing that what works for me doesn't work for you is, I think, something that is giving the power to the oppressive parties to uh, draw that line of distinction and knowing that that line of distinction is there and we're reclaiming the power to not segregate ourselves under the name of discrimination, but to protect what's ours and what we know for the sake of future generations 
having a space, give, being given that power, and hopefully that line, that div that divisive and very clear cut, this is what affects me and this is what affects you, is no longer there. I think we have a long way to go, but conversations like this, podcasts like this, only go to generate more conversations and therefore speed up that process. Thank you, Eunice and Patience, for joining us today. We really appreciate your time and your insight. Thanks so much for having us. I first speak for myself, but I really appreciate being able to, you know, talk at a platform like this about such an important issue and speak from my own personal experience, which I also know is the experience of a lot of other students. Thanks for having me and for providing this platform. Likewise, it's been amazing to step into a space where I can say all these things. I almost felt like I was venting. Like I needed to get all of this out and knowing that it, it will be heard and hopefully it resonates and that it's not a space where things will be taken personally for once. Because <laughs> I think it can be offensive to have these conversations with oppressive parties. So ha- doing the doing the work here and having that safe, sacred space to discuss what I did was really good for me and my spirit. I feel in alignment with what what gifts I've been granted, which is the ability to communicate my thoughts. I just want to thank BICMH and the Mental Health Campus Podcast for hosting me today. Hopefully this paves the way for other Indigenous women and youth and individuals to claim that space and accept those invites and continue maintaining this space. So Chimi Gwach, and thank you for having me. And I say thank you for having me. I thank you for having me and the seven generations behind me, the seven generations in front of me, all of my ancestors, all of my teachings. I say Chimi Gwach. And thank you for joining us, everyone. Don't forget to visit our website, campusmentalhealth.ca, for relevant resources on this topic. See you next time for another episode of the Mental Health on Campus podcast. Until then, take care.